Welcome to today's edition of Feet to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting-edge commentary, go to feettothefire.org. That is feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. Welcome to Ephesians. Uh, Let's get started. Let's pray. We're a little over, um, but we will jump right in. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for the teaching of your word, what we just heard in first service. We'll be hearing again in second service, and for the Sunday schools now, we commit this time to you for your glory. Speak to us from your word, and edify the saints. We love you and thank you, and we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome again to week five in uh, the book of Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter three. Lord willing, we're going to cover all of chapter three today. This is called... Today's message, the church, the manifold wisdom of God. The church, the manifold wisdom of God. So I do apologize. On this message, we can't hit every word of Ephesians chapter 3. So it's definitely going to be a flyover of this section. And here is the context, if you remember, building from chapters 1 and 2, a brief overview. You guys can hear me okay? Everybody good? Awesome. Okay. So in context, remember, I argued that this section, beginning in 2.11, is sort of an interruption, a detour from Paul's flow of thought, culminating in Ephesians 2.10. His flow of thought culminated in Ephesians 2.10, you have been prepared for good works. Now that will be picked up again in Ephesians 4. What are those good works of the Christian faith? That's four through the end of the book. But in the meantime, here, in chapter, in chapter three, he continues this interrupting thought about the kind of sinners that you were, Gentile sinners specifically, and so what God has done in bringing you Gentiles into the household of faith. That's the interrupting point. Uh, and here's a summary of the end of uh, chapter two, just to get our minds into chapter 3, the summary of the end of chapter 2. Because of this oneness of temple worship, just described, into which the Gentiles have been brought with the Jews, no longer one or the other, or even both, but now one new man in Christ, our reconciliation, Christ is, and himself the cornerstone, with all prior identities, we talked about this last week, and prior distinctions erased and abolished and rendered obsolete because of, because of this temple worship, this oneness in Christ, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, for the sake of the Gentiles, here is the implications of my ministry to you, what it all means in God's grand plan. And if you thought that sounded like a long sentence because I'm kind of imitating the way Paul teaches in these long sentences, thought compounding on the previous thought. So because, because of temple worship, and it's no longer one or the other or even both, but one new man, Christ himself, the reconciliation and cornerstone, we are engaged in this temple worship. I, a prisoner for the gospel, for the sake of you Gentiles, this is what it all means, my ministry to you. And this is chapter three. That's what we're talking about. So, question is this, what is the fully revealed plan of God? Do we have, or do we even know, the fully revealed plan of God? Do we know that? For all time, over all time, do we know the fully revealed plan of God? And here's our thesis this morning. The, listen, the eternal purpose of God has been revealed in the church, for which we suffer 
and as members of which we mature in the knowledge of God. Let me say that again. The eternal purpose of God has been revealed in the church for which we suffer, and as members of which we mature in the knowledge of God. And I want to note this, as we have a moment, I'll point it out. There are so many repeated words and themes from prior passages. You'll see this, again, this word, surpassing, in the Greek, overthrowing, surpassing, uh, beyond what you could imagine, beyond, you know, we we, we saw that about uh, God's surpassingly great power, surpassing, Uh, the power energizing at work in us, the power energizing us, that's resurrection power, glory, we'll hear again, Talk of authorities and rulers. Okay, so let's read chapter 3. Let's read chapter 3. Here we go. All of Ephesians 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you, the Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the stewardship of the grace of God having been given to me for you all, that according to Revelation, the mystery was made known to me, just as I wrote before briefly, by which... You are able, reading, to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5. Which to other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as now was revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, for the Gentiles to be fellow heirs and members of the same body and fellow participants of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace having been given to me by the working of his might. Verse 8. To me, the least of all the saints was given this grace to the Gentiles to preach the fathomless richness of Christ and to enlighten all what is the administration of the mystery having been hidden from the ages in God, the one creating all things, verse 10, in order that it might be made known now to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenlies through the church, that's key, the manifold wisdom of God, according to the purpose of the ages which he planned or did or made or purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through the faith of him. I ask you, therefore, not to be troubled by my tribulations for you, which are your glory. Verse 14. For this reason, I bend my knees toward the Father, from whom all fatherhood in the heavenlies and upon the earth is named, in order that he might grant you, according to the richness of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, for Christ to dwell by faith in your hearts, in love having been rooted and having been firmly established, in order that you might be able to grasp with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in order that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able over all to do far above what we ask or imagine according to the power working. There it is again. The power working in us to him, the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations of the age of the ages. Amen. We could just read scripture. It's so good, isn't it? So good. All right. 
So, number one, I want you to understand the full scope of the gospel. My points are imbalanced today. Number one is the biggest. Usually is, but it's really the biggest, okay? Uh, So points one, two, and three, we'll get to them, Lord willing. Number one, understand the full scope of the gospel. Now, I I want one other note, a side note, that's a, to reinforce what I spoke about last week. Remember last week I said we're abandoning all of the uh, Marxist ideology and humanist ideology, that there's races that are competing, and black and white, and it's, that's, that's not even, it's a human construction. Race is not a thing. It's fake. It's a lie. There are no races. There's one race, the race of Adam, all are damned in him, and the second Adam, in whom all may attain to life if they put their faith in Christ. It's one race of man. Okay, so I want to reinforce that point. You know, Paul, in verse 1, calls himself a prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. And I don't know if I said this to you last week. The Greek word is ethnos. I am a prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. It's the actual Greek word ethnos. Gentiles, from where we get the word ethnic. That's the same word in chapter 2 he keeps using for Gentiles in your English translations. The Greek word ethnos. Nations, non-Jews, but the same word keeps coming up and he's saying no more. Literally, listen, the teaching rendered from the Greek literally in this and the previous section is here. Listen, there are no more ethnics. There is no more ethnicity. Do you see the weight of what I'm saying? It's the opposite of the world. There is no more ethnicity in Christ. And all we hear is celebrate diversity and multiculturalism and everybody in these disparate groups by skin color or whatever else, superficial. Is that not? That's amazing to me. It's detonating. There is no more ethnicity. That flies in the face of the modern Marxist socialist woke religion of division. I just wanted to point that out because I think I neglected to mention that Greek last week. We are one in Christ. Okay, now, the theologically key verse... In this section is verse 10, the trajectory of Paul's interruption that begins in chapter 2, verse 11, and continues to the end of 3. The the trajectory is verse 10, explaining the overarching gospel purpose. In order that, verse 10, now might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. That is the full scope of the gospel. Uh, Background. Here's the background. This never crossed anyone's mind. What, what never crossed anyone's mind? Well, this mystery. Paul keeps saying mystery. Well, what mystery? What's the mystery? It takes a long time, a very roundabout way for Paul to say it with lots of clauses and interruptions and clarifications, all of which we will not hit this morning. Uh, this mystery for which he says, God made me a steward and a servant and a preacher to you ethnos, you Gentiles. Okay, okay, what mystery? It keeps building. So this is the mystery Paul is alluding to here. One not known, it says, to other generations of men, but now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, it's building. Here is that mystery. Ready? That the Gentiles are to be fellow heirs, members of the same body as God's people, fellow participants of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Can we say, if you hear of the promise in Christ through the gospel, the Abrahamic promise? Galatians 3.16 says the same. The seed through which all nations will be blessed. We are co-heirs of that promise. Gentiles are fellow participants of the promise, Paul says, of which I was made a servant by God's effectual, energizing power. Even more, the mystery revealed, he develops it more, this stewardship to me is to preach to the ethnos, to the Gentiles, and so bring to light for all to see, it's still building, to see what? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. That's it. 
through the church to present the manifold, multifaceted wisdom of God now made known to every and all rulers and authorities in all ages and all realms in heaven and on earth into the ages of the ages. God be forever praised. Amen. That's the mystery. He's saving the Gentiles. In short, the mystery is God is saving the world and his wisdom to save is manifest in his church. The superstructure comprised of all peoples that he made and constituted in Christ. The mystery, listen, is the church. The wisdom of God is the church. The divine plan of God all along was the church through which God would once and for all display to everyone his final sovereign rule and authority and reign and dominion and rightful claim over all creation, a dominion exercised by his son, Jesus Christ, the one given headship over the church all for his own glory. Do you see it now? Do you see it? It was always, only, ever, all about the church. God's plan from the very beginning to glorify himself. Do you see? Look at verse 11. In order that might be made known to all rulers through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. What wisdom? This is verse 11. Wisdom according to the purpose or the intention of the ages, the plan of the ages, the plan, the eternal purpose, the plan of all time, which he purposed or set forward and made in Christ Jesus. It was the plan of the ages. You, church, were the plan of the ages. And now the church has bold and confident access to God in Christ. Who is God? God is the great and holy Lord of the hosts of heaven. We, the church, have access. It is the unique privilege of the people of God. What now do you say, rulers and principalities of the universe, look and behold what God has done in his church? We are seated on his throne with him. That's amazing. The angels are not. The redeemed are. So how mysterious was this? How mysterious was this gospel? Let's see. Old covenant. We're going to go quick timeline, okay? You guys with me? Okay. Awesome. I know I talk loud. I'm excited. I also talk fast. I'm excited. I'm also on a time crunch. <laughs> Old covenant. Old covenant, God's chosen people were circumcised. We learned that last week. Any alien proselyte or convert was brought and they were made Jewish. They had to get circumcised. You become Jewish. Old Testament prophecies have this hint that the nations will swarm to the holy mountain of God. That the Gentiles themselves, the non-Jews, the ethnos, the dirty nations will turn and they will even be called my people. Hints all over the Old Testament. Then in the New Covenant, Jesus keeps talking about true worshipers, John 4. Uh, he says, go to the ends of the earth. And there's hints, or more than hints, of the expansion of the people of God. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given, the church explodes, and there's thousands of converts, listen, among the Jews. And then all of a sudden, the movement begins expanding, hitting Samaritans in Acts 8, and then Jewish proselytes, the Ethiopian in Acts 8, and then Cornelius, Acts 10, he's a full-blown pagan Gentile. Of the kind that we described last week, heathen idolaters without Christ, remember this from last week, without citizenship, without promise, without hope, without God in this world, but entirely profane and darkened in ignorance. That is what you were. That is what I was. Remember the confusion, if you think back to Acts, and the disorder when Peter and his friends went into Cornelius' house. Do you remember that? 
You Jews can't go in Gentile houses. He got back to Jerusalem, and he had to explain himself to the apostolic leadership, and they actually debated it. What was going on here? Indeed, it was a startling thing when God expanded the remarkable majesty of his restorative work beyond Israel to all nations. When he moved from Old Covenant Israel, they were confused. They were startled. They're in Acts In that meeting with Peter, they're like, what exactly is going on here? You went to a Gentile house. He moved from Old Covenant Israel. Who's Old Covenant Israel? Old Covenant Israel was the nation who expectantly awaited for hundreds of years a redemptive kingdom and the repudiation of the heathen nations under Israel's finally exalted control. That's what they were expecting. Repudiate the ethnos under the Davidic kingdom. And it it moves from that to new covenant church that includes all men. Now, let me give you another piece of context. The apostles and the Jews, they got it, quote unquote, about expanding to the ends of the earth in a very narrow sense. Right, they were thinking, that's Israel, the restored Davidic kingdom, Israelite dominance over the earth with God's installed anointed king on Mount Zion. So hence, listen, do you remember their pointed question at the outset of the book of Acts? Will you now, Jesus, at this time, restore the what? The kingdom. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Think how they're, see how they're thinking? You know, Jesus, the Solomonic temple, the Davidic palace, the expanded land, the rest on our borders, every man on his plot of ground. You're thinking of the Old Testament prophecies. Remember, this is the apostles who are with Jesus. They're asking this. And then Jesus remarkably answers, don't worry about dates and times. Just go preach. And now I'm inserting this implied. You, you have no idea what is about to happen. Your view is so small. It's so simple and finite and naive. Will I restore the kingdom? The, the Davidic kingdom? The Israelite kingdom? The Jewish kingdom? You have no idea what I'm about to do. Go preach and watch. Now it's almost reminiscent of Habakkuk 1, God's message to Habakkuk in Habakkuk 1, when he raises up Babylon to demolish Israel for their wickedness and rebellion. And yet Babylon was as, was, as bad or worse than Israel, a heathen nation. Habakkuk's like, you're going to You're going to take a heathen nation and punish your chosen people? God says this. Look at the nations. This is, again, reminiscent of almost what Jesus was saying to the apostles in Acts 1. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something, Habakkuk, in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And Habakkuk is incredulous. You are exalting the Babylonians, that heathen nation, into a mighty nation? But now the answer is this. No, no, Habakkuk, I'm not exalting them. I'm saving the Babylonians. I'm redeeming the Babylonians. What? Now back to Cornelius. Peter returns, he defends his actions, the leaders debate, and then one of the most sublime verses in the entire Bible. Are you ready? That listen now, you Gentiles in this room. Listen. You had better memorize and drop to your knees and thank God for this that this verse was included in the Bible, in God's revealed scripture and eternal plans, and you need to sing loudly every Sunday, every day over this, because I want you to notice the thoughtful and contemplative surprise of the apostles after Peter got back from Cornelius' house and they debated this. 
Acts 11.18, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Wow. Even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They did not see this. No one saw this. And that's us, lost, ignorant, in all of our profanity and darkness, damned and hopeless. And the Jews look and they're like, wow, God is saving even the Babylonians. That's us. This was unheard of. This was mind-blowing and all-encompassing, far-reaching. Do you realize what men and angels and principalities must have thought as they're watching the book of Acts unfold after Pentecost and the gospel getting preached and Cornelius getting saved? Oh my, oh my, oh my, this is much, much bigger, much grander than anything, anything we could have ever imagined. Did you all hear? Did you see? Satan and the devil and the demons and the dark powers must be shuddering at this new prospect. Hey, did you hear? Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, he's not saving Israel. No. No, we had never realized, never thought of it. In fact, it never even crossed the mind. Israel? No, that's far too small. He's saving the entire world. Yahweh is saving the nations. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no mind has conceived what God has planned. In fact, it had never entered into the heart of man what God would do to save the nations. But we see that God has granted even to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Guys, that we hang on that verse. 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you The prophets searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. I'm reading, following the same theme. Peter's saying even the the prophets in the Old Testament, they were searching and trying to find out where is this Messiah and what exactly is going to happen. It was cloudy. They couldn't see it. And they spoke of the things that have now been told you in the gospel, things into which angels long to look. Even the angels were trying to find out what is the manifold wisdom of God that he's doing. And it's greater than what God said to Habakkuk. Not that he's merely raising up the Babylonians, but he's going to save them and call them his own. Now then, uh, this temple worship of which we spoke last week and this mystery, I want to make a couple comments that I missed last week. I'm going to repeat a little bit. Okay, and then I'm going to add a little bit. So some of this I said last week, but I want to explain this to give us a theological framework for how we interpret Scripture. Uh, So based upon all of this, there is in here a significant argument for a covenantal framework, covenant theology over and against dispensational theology. Now I'll explain that. Those sound like big words. But most of the evangelical church for the last, I don't know, 100 plus years, if you grab an evangelical off the street, would be dispensational, even if they don't tell you that. They don't know that it's called that. That's probably what they think. That, uh, like the Left Behind series, okay, we're all like living along, and then uh, secret coming of Jesus, nobody knows, church gets raptured out, planes crash, all the Christians are gone, cars go off the road, and the world continues, and then God does things with national Israel, and then the end comes. Okay, I don't think that fits with this, even though most evangelicals just kind of, you grow up breathing that air. Okay, Uh, not necessarily here, but 
in general. Okay, I don't think we have a dispensational view. Here's the dispensational view. That the church is the parentheses in God's redemptive work in human history to be raptured out. And then history goes on and God reinstitutes his work and his covenants with literal physical Israel. I don't think this makes the case for that, but rather covenantal theology, which is this. God has worked through advancing and mounting and accumulating covenants, culminating in the new covenant that subsumes and fulfills them all. It's the all-surpassing covenant. So whether it's the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, comes Christ, the new covenant, and is the all-surpassing covenant. By this, then, the church is the culmination and is the end point of Jew and Gentile. No longer two, but one. The church is the manifold wisdom of God. The church is the trajectory of history. The trajectory is the new covenant in Christ. Therefore, he's the cornerstone of a new spiritual temple. Hence, the symbolic and spiritual interpretation of all Old Testament prophecies, having their spiritual fulfillment in Christ and his new covenant church. The supremacy of which, the supremacy of the church, is clearly defined at the end of Ephesians 1. We did this three weeks ago. The church is his body, the fullness of him, the one filling all in all. That's it. It's the church. The messianic kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, has been inaugurated in Christ. It is spiritually happening now. In him, the whole building from last week, the edifice being joined together grows into a holy temple. This is symbolic language. It's figurative language. John 4, worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. And final, if it's symbolic, then final fulfillment, consummation, culmination will happen in the second advent of Christ, what we would call the realized kingdom. And that's physical in the new heaven and the new earth, wherein God's abode is with man. So you have this already not yet idea of the messianic kingdom. I don't think that God's rapturing us out and then starting to do things again with Israel. I think that it runs completely contrary to what we learned in the last two weeks from Ephesians. Now, either way you go, the implication is this. Temple worship, I think the argument made, is that temple worship of the nations has begun. So, the temple worship and the drawing of the nations to God that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Stay with me. I know I'm getting into the Old Testament here, these prophecies, and I'm not reading them all, but there's tons of Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah and elsewhere that the nations will flock to the mountain of God. And they will come and worship Yahweh. Well, the temple worship and the drawing of the nations to God, prophesied in the Old Testament, what we would call the Messianic Kingdom, has its fulfillment in the church now, partially, and then fuller in the age to come. We already have worship in God's presence now. His temple, his holy dwelling place, heaven, where now resides our great high priest. Our life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3. We have been seated there in Christ in the heavenlies, Ephesians 2. And also, we are that temple, our bodies are the temple, 1 Corinthians 6. It is a spiritual superstructure with no distinctions wherein God resides in Christ who are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. But also, number two, not yet, there is future worship in the realized kingdom where all peoples from every nation, tribe, and tongue come to worship in the temple, which temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Revelations 21, 22, it, the temple is the Lord. So it says there is no temple to be seen in the new heavens and new earth because God is the temple. Do you see? It's spiritual. All the temple language here is spiritual. And so P.T. O'Brien says this, the temple imagery here in Ephesians 2 is to be understood in fulfillment of these promises. 
And he lists a bunch of Old Testament promises. Gentile fulfillment is also reminiscent of 1 Kings, Isaiah, Zechariah. Again, I don't have time to read all these. So what does that mean? We have a covenantal framework. I think it's the correct way to look at the church. We are the new Israel of God. We are the new Israel of God. And that would put you potentially, if you're wanting to put yourself in a camp, as potentially amillennial or historic premillennial. And if you don't want to think about those words because they're really big or you want to talk about later, we can. But if you just want to get a snapshot of it, the church is the trajectory. The church is the new Israel. And we are here straight on till the last day. At which point we are here till the end. We are here through whatever tribulations come. We're here through it all till the point when the nations look up and there is Christ. And at that point, we're raptured and we will be with the Lord forever and he will bring down his holy and righteous indignation on the earth. It's a very simple view of the end. Okay, um, further, the phrase bold and confident access, access that we see in verse 11 is also reminiscent of temple worship, the holy of holies access. We have bold and confident access into the holy of holies. Uh, there's other New Testament language that conveys temple worship, that it's now happening. It's, see, temple worship, listen, is not an afterthought. So that's why I don't understand this parenthetical idea of the church, that history's going on, God interrupts it, then we have the church and the gospel and thousands of years of the church, and then we get raptured out and God starts things over again with Israel. It doesn't, it doesn't work because the church and temple worship is not an afterthought or an intermittent interruption or a parenthetical thought between God's dealing with Israel, but rather, listen, the church and temple worship is the thought. It is the plan. It is the purpose. It is the intention. It's the goal. It's the culmination. It is the new Israel. Hebrews 4, we have a great high priest. We draw near with confidence. Hebrews 6, we have a steadfast anchor of the soul going into the inner sanctuary. Hebrews 10, 19, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way that he opened through his flesh. We draw near with full assurance. If this is not fulfillment of the temple worship prophecies of the Old Testament, when the ethnos would flock and swarm to the mountain of God in real time now, if this isn't the fulfillment, then I ask, what is the fulfillment? Isn't this the spiritual and true worship about which Jesus was speaking in John 4? Indeed, it is a spiritual temple. Christ and us as the body to be realized physically in the new creation. And the final key phrase that you see ending this section regarding the supremacy and centrality of the church in God's ultimate purpose, the supremacy of the church. Look at the concluding thought of Paul's doxology in verse 21. To him, the glory in the what? Church. And in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. So yeah, hopefully that was a fair and robust and reasonable argument for covenant theology. If you think otherwise, that's fine. If you'd like to discuss it more, that's fine. But I become more and more convinced when I look at the trajectory of what, is God, what God is doing in Christ, our final prophet and great high priest. Okay, number two, suffer for the nation. So understand the full scope of the gospel. And number two, suffer for the nations. There's another key verse in this section. Verse 13. This is the, if I could say, the practical trajectory of the interruption. So the interruption, he starts in verse 211, which is very theological. I love it. After my, uh, my uh, loving and gentle admonition last week to pay attention, I'm seeing people's eyes. They're like this. I'm looking. <laughs> it's okay. All right. Here we go. Uh, 
There's a practical trajectory in his interruption that begins in 2.11 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 3, okay? And it's this practical, this little practical comment he makes in the middle of the interruption. Therefore, verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart or be troubled by my tribulations for you, which are your glory. And we cannot escape this teeny tiny command in this entire theological treatise. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, we haven't seen many commands, really at all. But here we have a tiny command, and almost, I confess, my fleshly impulse staggered. I'm like, really? The whole imperative of this whole section, these first three chapters, is, but don't be troubled by my tribulation, which is your glory. Implication of which, after three chapters of theology, church, suffer for the gospel. It's your glory. That's his command. Well, what are the implications of Paul's imprisonment? Because he was writing this from prison, we said. He does all things for the sake of the Gentiles, the ethnos. 2 Timothy 2. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. 1 Corinthians 9. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. So that's Paul's attitude. And then he says to the church, don't be alarmed, church. Don't be troubled or disturbed or unsettled by suffering. Listen, it is a life of suffering. The Christian life is a life of suffering after all of this theology. You know, it's enough to be like your master, Jesus says in the Gospels. You're not above your master. The student's not above the teacher, but it's enough that you be like him. If they persecuted the teacher and the master, they are going to persecute you, John 15, 20. And so rather than being troubled by Paul's distresses and imprisonment, he's saying to the church, join me in suffering for the gospel and the coming inheritance and kingdom. And I know there's nothing stupendously insightful about this, but it is the, the glorious and the bare reality of three chapters of sublime, exultant theology that Christ has conquered and he's seated in the heavenlies and we are there with him and he's reigning and all principalities are subject to his feet and no one had any idea that he wasn't just saving Israel, he was saving the nations and all the Gentiles would come rushing to his holy mountain and temple worship. Therefore, church, suffer for the gospel because it's your glory. Wow, that's a calling. And rejoice in the glory to be attained from your suffering, 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, which speaks of your light and momentary afflictions as we suffer for the gospel. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all whatever you're suffering through for the gospel. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Have you found that it is so hard to fix your eyes on what is unseen? Is your faith challenged in your Christian walk? Mine is. But that's the essence of faith. I'm going to keep going to church every Sunday, and I'm going to go to prayer meeting, and I'm going to disciple in the church, and I'm going to give my investments into the church. And I'm going to pray for world missionaries that I've never met. And the discipline after discipline of the Christian faith. Because I, I trust that what is unseen is there. And there will be an eternal glory that far outweighs all of this. 
For us, it might be the deprivations of the luxurious life. Application. Lord, increase our faith to see the scope of what you have done in Christ and in the church for all ages, for all time. The grand design that Paul has here described over three chapters. And let us be caught up in it, in this this manifold wisdom of God. Even unto imprisonment and suffering and enduring all things for the sake of the great reward and inheritance imperishable kept for us in heaven. Where we are already seated with Christ, we have the victory, so church, heed the call to battle, to lay it all on the line. This is why we study theology, because without theology, you cannot be motivated to go to prison for Christ. Without theology, let me repeat that, you cannot be motivated to go to prison for Christ. You need to witness the the revelation of Scripture, know and understand your God more and more, and that knowledge, which is transformative, will compel faith. And you will live the way people and men like Paul did. In light of everything we studied in this theology over the last five weeks, how can we be anything but motivated to say, I will let go of this world and pursue my high calling in Christ. Let our minds be there, church, and beckon our flesh and our lives to follow accordingly. I will do all things for the sake of the gospel. And we need to constantly hear that from one another in the church. Because the world is very tempting and it lulls us to sleep. Point three, the last of chapter three, yield to God, know God, be filled with God. And we are essentially out of time, so I'll be very fast here. So understand the full scope of what God has done in the gospel, saving the nations. Suffer for the sake of this gospel. And then thirdly, yield to God, know God, and be filled. So a final key verse in this section is verse 19. And in a sense, it's the reason for the interruption. Go over verse 19. That's the idea of fullness again, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, maturity and completeness in Christ. That's the goal, which he talks about later in Ephesians 4. I want you to grow up to be a complete man in, a, in the measure of maturity and fullness of Christ. That's the whole point of all of this. He's saying, know God, suffer for the gospel, so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. So, first thing to observe in this section, recognize God's fatherhood and lordship. Do you see that in verses 14 and 15? So, I want to give you two observations from verse 14 where he says, From whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. By whom fatherhood is named. Man is inclined to worship. It's the history of the ages. As we said last week, it's a history of continual idolatry. Why do we think it's strange or it's a leap of faith to assert what the nations have asserted for eons in every generation, what the heavens and nature itself asserts, namely that there is a creator, there is fatherhood, there is a person above and over all. And despite how people will kick against that, it's a self-evident proposition. Therefore, yield, O man, to the worship of the universe's sovereign, and as Paul did, bend the knee to the Father. Also, I want you to notice this. Fatherhood and paternity, or patriarchy, buzzword, gets everybody all upset. Great word, by the way, great word. Patriarchy is, quote me, great word. We love patriarchy as the church. Fatherhood, paternity, patriarchy is of God. It is God. It is from God. And patriarchy is high, hardwired into God's creation. And it's, it's, it's created order. So therefore, embrace fatherhood and patriarchy. Don't kick and fight against it. Rather, find your position in God's created order, which is governed by patriarchy and his fatherhood. 
That's implications of verse 14. Okay, then he goes on, and I have all this broken up because it's so many interwoven clauses that we don't have time to go through. But he, he has this prayer for the Ephesians. And the description of his prayer, that they would understand God's love, is a long and winding Greek construction. I'll say it fast. He, he prays for God to grant them to be strengthened with might in the inner man, according to glory, by the Holy Spirit, for Christ to live in their hearts by faith, being grounded in love. That's all in there. So that new idea, they are able to grasp with all the saints, what is the extent of Christ's love? To know a love beyond knowledge, so that, new idea, here's the ultimate goal, that they can be filled with all the fullness of God. To be filled, maturity, completely. So let's distill it down. By God's gracious and powerful spirit indwelling, Christ lives in us so we can, by apprehending his great love, necessarily attain Christ-like maturation. We will be more filled and conformed to him. And he prays this for them to know the surpassing love. That's a key verb, the mind. Know the love of God. So that second key verb, you can be filled with God's fullness. That's maturity. Maturity from knowing. Yet again, it's word-based and revelation-based. Oh, I have so much to say to you. I'll say it fast. <laughs> Let me... Church, teach Bible, preach the Bible, preach to yourself and others constantly, incessantly, zealously, relentlessly. It is our only ticket out of here. Not only for the life to come, the gospel, but also out of the train wreck disorder of this life, a reality we live every day, whether trials or persecution, distresses, famine, nakedness, sword, struggles with sin, temptations, failures, weakened faith. The word is what we need and grow by it. The maturation from it in Christ, it's our only hope of hanging on victorious until the day of redemption. It's our only hope of victory. You do not need to be settled in your sin. You do not be, need to be settled in defeat. We have victory in Christ, but we need to constantly preach the word. Okay, following this, he ends the interruption section, which started in 2.11 before chapter 4, by bursting into a wonderful doxology of praise to God. How God is able to do far above whatever we can imagine. And so I'll read you this and we'll close it. Dear church, there's nothing insurmountable or outside of God's jurisdiction or ability. Outside the bounds of reach by his word and power. This is something alluded to and I touched on in lesson three. There is nothing outside God's ability. There is no sin situation that he cannot subdue and master with resurrection power and word illumination and fix in which you are able to gain victory. Nothing that man can conceive of or do that God cannot dominate with his rich grace and glorious power. And I'm thinking of all the terrible evil of human contrivances. We live in an age of transgenderism and all of this, and, and pornography and all these things that are afflicting men. Nothing is outside the energizing work of God's resurrection power by which he's able to do more than we can possibly imagine. And that's how he ends chapter three. Be encouraged. Christ is our greatest hope. So understand the full scope of the gospel Suffer for the nations and yield to God the Father to attain to the majority of, maturity of Christ. I like how King James Version ends it. Very, very poetic how it ends this section, this translation. Unto God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. 
Now, that concludes all the theology of the first three chapters, uh, a very quick survey. And now we pick up part two with how to live this out in the Christian life, orthopraxy, the rest of the book for the next weeks. Uh, I will not be here because I'll be in, Lord willing, Cambodia for the next two Sundays. Um, And it's a very exciting section to start. But I am entrusting my Sunday school class, which I love dearly, into the hands of a very faithful fellow, uh, one of the men from one of the few men from whom I learned to preach, and so I'm very happy to give it over to my brother Sal, and he'll be filling in for the next two weeks. So be here, don't miss, and then uh, I'll be back hopefully, and then we'll continue from there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day, and thank you for the patience of these uh, faithful men and women. There was more to say, not enough time, but we thank you for your word and for the theology therein. Lord, motivate us to suffer for the gospel and motivate us with the victory that we have in Christ, this energizing power in us, resurrection power. We have already won in Christ. We love you and thank you and give you all the praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll see you guys in the second service. Have a great week.